0: My life is hidden with Christ, God the just is satisfied. Down at the cross where my Savior died, and a mighty fortress is our God, in a world that's topsy-turvy, in a world that is full of shiny things, it's amazing to be able to stand before you with the Word of God and say, this is the truth and this is what you can build your life on. When I think about the grace of God, the lives changed, and Logan's life here is several years ago when we were meeting the gymnasium because the foyer was getting uh, renovated, and uh, Logan and Hannah started attending, and the Lord started working in their hearts, and uh Logan, um, just from the very beginning, has just had this intensity about knowing and applying the Word of God and a hunger for God. He'll be the first to tell you, he's got a long way to go. But seeing God's grace work through His Word is pretty powerful, pretty amazing. We've been working through, beginning last week, A series here that describes the various stages people might find themselves in their journey to Christ. And then with Christ and then cooperating with Christ. And we need to think about discipleship and think about a pathway. Each of us need to evaluate where we we as individuals are before Jesus Christ. And not be content where we are, but through God's power and His grace move to the next step. We also need to be able to uh know where people uh are in their walk with Christ as we get to know them and 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 God is is moving in their hearts to 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 move to the next step and and how to speak into their life and help them grow as we're all called to make disciples as well. We're also called to intentionally be seeking people, to move people to Jesus, which might be on on all kinds of a, a spectrum or a continuum uh, here with, uh, with, with their unbelief and then with their belief in Jesus and growing in Jesus. And so after this session last Sunday on skeptics in Acts 17, we're... Beginning, making disciples of the curious. Stewarding curiosity. Seeing that as a gift from God and using it and, and uh, breathing life into those, into those fires here through the Word of God and the Holy Spirit using us. We think of people who are curious about Jesus in the Bible. We could throw a few names out. The previous chapter, Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus at night. It's a safe space and he wants to know more. What are they telling What are they saying about Jesus? What do you say for yourself, Jesus? And he asks him questions. We think about Zacchaeus in the book of Luke. Short man in stature physically, the Bible says, and there's a big crowd around Jesus and he's curious about Jesus so he actually climbs a tree to see Jesus. And Jesus walks by that tree and he says, I'm inviting myself over to your house today, Zacchaeus. And he tells him about who he is and why he came and Zacchaeus repents and Zacchaeus gives back stuff that he's stolen from people, his heart's changed. Think about the Ethiopian eunuch. He goes to Jerusalem as a proselyte of Judaism, probably participating in one of the feasts that the Israelites, the Jewish people, practice. And he gets a hold of a scroll of the Old Testament and it happens to be Isaiah. He's reading the book of Isaiah. And he reads Isaiah 53. And God sends Philip along. Because God is seeking worshipers. And God sends Philip along. Philip obeys. Philip explains what Isaiah 53 is talking about. talk talking about Jesus Christ crucified and dead and risen for our sins. And that man's heart is changed. And this morning, we're looking at the woman at the well. We could have picked any of those. I want to look in John chapter 4 here at this particular woman at the well. Making disciples of the curious. Stewarding curiosity. You say, well, what does it mean to be curious here? This would be somebody who might say, I'm curious enough about Jesus to investigate His life and teachings. Maybe that describes you today. You're, you're here, uh, you, you, you're, you're not committed to Jesus, but you're, you're curious, you're interested. What does Jesus say? Who is this person, Jesus, that has changed the world that we even base our history timelines on, B.C. and A.D.? Who is this person? How, how can I know that, that uh, a relationship with Jesus is real? What would a relationship with God uh, do for me? Or maybe you have some questions about specific Christian beliefs Uh, and you're, you're curious. And friends, our goal as believers who are to make disciples is to steward their curiosity, to see that as a gift from God and help them understand that curiosity doesn't save anybody. But it is belief and faith in Jesus that saves. And that curiosity that they might interpret as just their own meanderings, very probably is the call of Jesus on their life. And Jesus is calling them. That's really what happens in John chapter 4 here. Here's a woman that Logan read about. And first when she sees Jesus, she sees Him as, this is a Jewish man. Then later on she says, you're greater than Jacob. Then she says, you're a prophet. Then she says, you're the Messiah. And then at the end of the passage, those who she has to share this message with, they're saying, you're the Savior of the world. That's stewarding curiosity to belief. Moving it to belief. Obviously, we don't change hearts. That's the job of the, of the Holy Spirit. But we present the Word of God and the truth of who God is. And God uses those things in this process. So I want to look at this passage here um, uh from from the perspective of making disciples as Jesus did in fact that's how we're introduced in these verses is Jesus is making disciples John's making disciples and don't think John's doing this in a in a in a uh competitive way and they're they're two different uh people lead, trying to draw people toward them they're on the same team and so Jesus says it's better for us since we're on the same team and we're both making more and more disciples here uh, to go this way and and in verse chapter 3 says he left Judea and departed again in the galley, and verse 4 says he must needs go where it was necessary for him to go through Samaria. He needed to go through Samaria. Now, John includes that little phrase there because he wants us to understand that Jesus is on a seek and save mission. He is, compete, he is, he is cooperating in the mission of God to seek worshipers. And it was necessary for him to go out of what had been the normal, traditional Jewish comfort zone to a region of people called Samaritans. And, Jesus says it is, and John says it is necessary for Jesus to go through Samaria. Let me give you a little background, and probably many of you are familiar with this background, but the Samaritans were a group of people who in the 700s BC, had been, they were Jewish people who had been conquered by the Assyrian Empire in history. And the Assyrian Empire, as they conquered these 10 of the 12 northern tribes of Israel, intermarried, the Assyrians intermarried with these Jewish people, and they created a group called, uh, their their children were a group that ended up being called the Samaritans. Samaritans. So they were, you could say, half Jewish and half non-Jewish or half Gentile. And through events in history, the two tribes who were purebred Jewish, however you want to express that, and those who were not and now called the Samaritans begin to have rifts. They began to look at each other as enemies. Um, we hear that word Samaritan and we think of the good Samaritan. We have good connotations of that. If you heard Samaritan in Jesus' day uh, with the culture that he was in, uh, you would have not looked at that very positively. And so every Jew, because Samaria was a portion of Israel that, that that was that was in the way between the north and the south, uh, every Jew would have to uh, get, in order to get to another place would tend to walk around that region and not go through it. And here Jesus, because he's the Savior of the world, he's the Savior of all nations. Here he must go through Samaria. He didn't let the culture of his day conform his mind. Uh, to what, to what it wanted to conform to instead. He allows his, <clears throat> his life, first of all, to be surrendered to the Lord's will. He, he surrenders his heart. His heart is in line with what God's mission is. And for, friends, if we're going to make disciples of the curious, we must be intentional, but we must be surrendered disciples ourselves. Notice the verse says in verse 5, He's exhausted. Jesus is weary. He's fully God and He's fully man. He doesn't exercise His Godhood here to serve Himself. He's exhausted. And He sits by the well. And it's about noon, and verse 7 says, A woman of Samaria came to draw water. To any other Jew, this would have been, first of all, you wouldn't have been in that area if you could help it. But then, uh, to have this close contact, and then to speak to her, and then ask her for water, as we see later on here, would have been something that's, that's not, uh, that was not, uh, looked upon with, with great pleasure. Your life is not an accident. How many remember your day when you came to Jesus Christ? How many remember when somebody crossed the threshold of their comfort zone to share with you about Jesus Christ? Jesus here, we'll we'll see, will have a genuine interest in this individual as a person, as an image-bearer of God. He has compassion. He sees her not as a Samaritan, not as an adulteress, not as someone who's not his gender. He sees her as a not-yet-believer. He sees her as a potential worshiper. And friends, so many times we have a way of missing what's right before us, don't we? Stories told of a, of a, of a Coloradan who moved to Texas and he built a house with a large picture window which he could view hundreds of miles of rangeland. The only problem, he said, is that there's nothing to see. <laughs> At the same time, a man from Texas moved to Colorado and he builds a large house on the side of a mountain, a large picture window overlooking the Rockies, and he says, the only problem is I can't see anything. The mountains are in the way. Right? People have a way of missing what's right before them. We have these filters in our eyes uh, uh, that, that filter out what God wants us to see here. But when we're in line with God and we surrender our comforts here, uh, we, 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 we see Things from God's perspective. We see people through God's eyes. People go to a city and they see lights and glitter, but they miss that cities are, and Emily, you can probably testify to this, cities are full of the loneliest people. People all around, but the loneliest people. People might hear a person's critical comments, but they miss what's behind that, the cry for love and, and friendship. Some of you have been in sales, you may have experienced the, the old sales manager training device holding up a large piece of paper with a little orange spot on it down in the corner and, the, and saying to the salesman, what do you see? And they all say, well, I see the orange spot on there. And, and the trainer says, that's your weakness as a salesman. You see the spot you don't see all the open opportunity before you. Billy Graham said, The modern world is said to have made discipleship harder, but it has also made evangelism easier. Today's world is said to be multiplying crises all around us, but we must never forget that for the gospel, each crisis is an opportunity. He said this, Every generation is strategic. We are not responsible for the past generation, and we cannot bear full responsibility for the next one, but we do have our generation. God will hold us responsible as to how well we fulfill our responsibilities to this age and take advantage of our opportunities. Now, there are a few instances in Scripture where people came to those who had the Gospel and said, what must I do to be saved, right? But most of the time, those situations are rare. and So Jesus takes an opportunity here to begin a conversation. And He does this by taking what the world's impressions were of these people and not looking at them as an us-versus-them mentality, not looking them at them as, as, well, you're on this side of the political spectrum or you're on this side of the, of, uh, of the ethnic, uh, so-called ethnic lines. He looks at them as people, image-bearers of God, who need Jesus, and God is seeking worshipers. He surrenders the heart. Um, Bert shared a story with me uh, a couple days ago that I wanted you to hear, uh, hear how he missed an opportunity in some ways to, to see people through God's eyes, but then he began to realize that and the Lord showed him a man that he, had, first of all, held at arm's length.
1: Um, as Jamie's talking here about the, the woman at the well, we have to just put it in context that, okay, she's a Samaritan, which to call even to call someone a Samaritan was a was a ridicule. You Samaritan. That's how it was used. And then a woman, which you know that the culture um, talking to a woman alone would have been a difficult thing. And then an outcast. This woman's an outcast in her own community. We have a way of writing people off and maybe just ignoring them. But then there's another category of people that. We actively try to avoid. About 10 years ago, God made it so that I became friends with a transvestite man named Desmond. I was in Myanmar, and we had to stay at government hotels. And so we ended up staying at this one hotel for many years. And there was a man who stayed there often, this man Desmond, who... Sometimes he would dress as a woman and sometimes he would dress just in soft clothing. But he was always very open, gave our our family gifts, always treated my boys, my sons, with respect. And I tried to avoid him as much as I possibly could. It was so uncomfortable for me. And we were on a trip and we needed our visas renewed, and, we, and I was running the trip, and we had 14 people with us. And so it came to the day that you, you send your visas out, to, your passports out to be renewed. And I handed 14 passports to this woman who was going to go around to all the government offices and, and uh, do the work, uh, and she said, well, I'll be back around 3 this afternoon. And this is a very nerve wracking thing to give passports to someone when you're in a foreign country. You're just like, will I ever see those like, again? You know, she could sell them for a lot of money. And so at three o'clock, I am down in the lobby just waiting for these passports to show up. And Desmond comes down a few minutes later and he is in full dress. I mean, hair done makeup done, nails done, dressed like he's going to prom in a very satiny gown and heels. And he sees me and he says, Birch, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, I'm waiting for our passports to come. He said, oh, I'll sit down with you and and wait with you. And I thought, I need to go. I, I really need to leave right now. And I cannot leave. Because there's 14 passports coming and I need to be here. And Desmond sat there for two hours with me while I waited for those passports that didn't come until 5 o'clock. We had lived in this hotel for months at a time, we knew every staff member at that hotel and they are walking by literally covering covering their mouths, trying not to laugh as Desmond and I sit on this couch and Desmond shares his entire life story with me. And I am thinking to myself, he was a friend of publicans and sinners. He was a friend of publicans and sinners. He was a friend... Just trying to convince myself to stay in that seat. But from then on, Desmond and I knew each other. We greeted each other. I didn't, didn't avoid him. A couple years later, he came in with a friend and he introduced me. And he said, you have such beautiful children. Your, your boys are my little emperors. Uh, and, and they kind of ran the show at this hotel. The, the staff just doted on them and they loved this hotel. And Desmond just encouraged that. Uh, so, he said, when are you going to have more children? And I said, well, I don't know that we'll have more children, but we may, someday we may adopt maybe a little girl from here. And he said, oh, I don't encourage adoption. I was adopted. And look at me. I don't even know what I am. I don't even know if I'm a man or a woman. I love children and they run from me. Your boys are the only ones that aren't scared of me. And it wasn't the time uh, he was with somebody, but I just desperately wanted to tell him of a man, Jesus Christ, who can tell him who he truly is. And I, I said we should talk about that sometime, but that conversation has never occurred. But we, we we write people off and, and you look at look at this man publicly dressing in a in a blatant, flagrant way, and you think, Wow, he's he's got it settled. He knows in his mind and, and he's just there's no chance with him. But by becoming friends with him, that was peeled back to be a complete facade. He doesn't know who he is. But Jesus knows who He is. So Jesus
0: then in verses 8 and on engages the image bearer. He engages the image bearer. Jesus says to her, give me a drink. Now you might think He's commanding her. That's a little rude. The fact that He's speaking to her is a sign of His grace and kindness. A woman says, is shocked that he's speaking to her. And she says, how is it you are a Jew? You're asking a drink for me and I'm a Samaritan woman. And the, the idea in the culture is Jews don't share utensils with Samaritans. And Jesus sparks her curiosity. He asks her a favor and He's providing her a safe space to be curious about Jesus. A safe space to come to Jesus. He doesn't shun her. He knows things about her. He knows her idolatry, we'll see later on. And He draws closer to her. He moves into her. He doesn't move away from her. He presses into her. That's the heart of God for sinners. Because He knows what's going on in her heart. She's empty. She's chasing things to try to fill the emptiness in her soul. And I found all kinds of illustrations of this uh, uh, here as I, was, as I was studying. Some of you might know who Jennifer Lawrence is, an actress here. She's had a long battle with anxiety and insecurity. And in 2014, she said, in middle school, there's all these peers judging you. And you're never good enough, never wearing the right outfit, saying the right thing. I want everyone to like me. Who doesn't? Then you grow up and become famous, and it's the same thing multiplied by a billion she saw herself. I uh, watched the, the show, uh, a show, uh, a program where she was interviewed. She watched it, and she said, "I." Uh, she had a full fledged panic attack, and she said, "All of a sudden, it was like being hit by a train. This realization of how many people are looking at me, how many opinions there are." She admitted, "In her worst moments, she's certain her career will come crashing down." A successful actress, right? People are going to get sick of me, she said. I'm way too annoying. But if people want to start a backlash against me? I'm the captain of the team. As much as you hate me, I'm ten steps ahead of you. Now, what girl would probably... A young girl would probably look at Jennifer Lawrence and say, I want to be like her, right? It's a facade. There's a hole there. Or uh, former Beatles star Paul McCartney said this in an interview with NPR. It seems to me that no matter how famous you are, no matter how accomplished... Or how many awards you get, you're always still thinking there's somebody out there who's better than you. I'm often reading a magazine and hearing about someone's new record, and I think, oh boy, that's going to be better than me. It's a very common thing. And the interview said, But you've had so you've had so much success, Sir McCartney. You, you, you feel competitive insecurity with someone else that's coming out of the record? And McCartney said, Unfortunately, yes, I should be able to look at my accolades and say, come on, Paul, that's enough. But there's still this little voice in the back of my brain that goes, no, 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 you could do better. This person over here is excelling. Try harder. It still can be a little bit intimidating. Jesus here engages the image bearer because he wants to direct her focus off of herself and finding that fulfillment in herself and find it in Jesus Christ alone. kids were watching Looney Tunes and uh, we were watching the Roadrunner cartoon and Violet who's about, who's five now, was watching and you know you watch Wile e. Coyote and he's strapped to a rocket propelled roller skates or shoots himself at a cannon to catch the Roadrunner and, and, and after a while she says, no matter what he does, he's not going to get the chicken. <laughs> hmm? Isn't that the human storyline though? No matter what we're going to do, we're not going to beat sin and death. No matter how many self-help books we read, no matter how many promises we make to ourselves and others, sin continues to wreak havoc on our lives, our relationships. No matter how many peace treaties are signed, how many relief efforts are launched here, we can't fix what's wrong with the world. No matter how many vitamins we take, how much exercise, how we eat, how many advances we make in medicine, we can't beat death. Ten out of ten people die no matter what he does he's never going to eat he's never going to get that chicken right that's every human being since adam and eve every human being has lived their own version of that same story and the good news about jesus is that that's who jesus comes to that's the people jesus comes to who realize that it's empty i can't do it and friends if you're not a sinner we don't want you here in this room There's other churches where you can find people that are full of people who aren't sinners. Or so they think. But if you're not a sinner, if you're a sinner, this is right where you need to be. Jesus calls people to Himself right where they are. Not where they're going to be later as He changes them. He gets to them right where they're at. In sin. Messy. Dirty. Broken. And nothing is surprising to Jesus and neither should we be surprised. That's what Jesus is for. We don't need Jesus because we're strong, because we're pure. We need Jesus because we're weak and because we're impure. And so Jesus engages this, this lady here and he sees her as an image bearer. She's there getting, getting water at about noon. Normally you would get it at dusk when the sun was going down. It would be a little cooler. And she's also getting it uh, from, from uh, and she's passed other wells on her way to get here. So it's kind of far away for her. And it's when the other women aren't there. And it assumes in this passage that she's doing it because there's something she's ashamed of. There's something she's ashamed of. But Jesus is going to steward that. He's going to take that and He's going to pull the thread. He's going to steward the curiosity. He's going to expose the cracks in the soul. Not to stand over her in judgment, but to say, I am the one who you need. Jesus says in verse 10, if you knew the free gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. woman's only thinking on this level and Jesus is talking on this level here of spiritual truths, invisible truths here. And she says, well, Jacob dug this well hundreds of years ago. You're better than him. You're going to provide me a well that's in... Her idea of living water is a spring moving water, not standing water. And Jesus says this in verse 13. Jesus answered and said, to her, whoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. You drink from this well, you're going to be thirsty. You come here day after day with this pot. And day after day you're filling that pot. And you go and you use it in your home and then you come back the next day and you fill it again and you fill it again and you fill it again. It's That's your life, right? But Jesus says in verse 14, Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Jesus is going to pull this thread and see how far she's going to be willing to let it go. Yesterday when I was visiting Chris, there was a man, they're sharing a room. Main med is just full of, of, of people they had beds in the hall it was, it was extremely booked and full and, I, and I as I was walking out I kind of greeted him and he said something that alerted me that he was, something was someone who was curious about Jesus so I engaged that and I asked him do you walk with Jesus? And he told me about some things in his life and, 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 uh, and some things that he's read in the Bible. And, and, I, and, I, and I pulled that thread as far as I could. And then when he wanted to uh, shut down, I, I, I backed off because I knew that I could trust the Lord. I could trust the Holy Spirit to work. And I knew the guy next to him was going to witness to him anyway. Chris would. Chris was witnessing in the ambulance about Jesus as he's there with his, uh, in, in, in extreme pain. And, um, and, uh, but but, but you, you pull the thread as far as it will go here. And, 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 and Jesus is, is telling her, uh, you're seeing things on this level. Let me share with you the real spiritual truth that you need in your heart. He's drawing on, on what he said in Jeremiah 2.13, that my people have committed two sins. they forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that can't hold water. They rejected the fresh running supply of life with God and they turned to these things that they made up in their own hearts to worship and find fulfillment. And she is incredulous. She can't believe that Jesus is the deeper well. Jesus is the deeper well. But Jesus is going to pull that thread. He's going to peer into the cracks in her soul. He's going to show her how her what, what life is without Jesus. He's going to show her what life is with Jesus. You know, Lake Tahoe is the eighth deepest lake in the world. I didn't realize this. But on July, uh, July 4th, 1875, two men discovered that the deepest point in that lake is 1,645 feet. They lowered a weighted champagne bottle on fishing line down to the bottom. Later on, after sonar was invented, they confirmed that. And Lake Tahoe is so large that if the lake would tip, tipped over, the lake would cover California with 14 and a half inches of water. It could provide every person in the United States with 50 gallons of water every day for five years. And just the evaporation from Lake Tahoe over the course of one year could supply a city the size of Los Angeles for five years. And Lake Tahoe is actually a small lake compared to Lake Superior, which is 120 times as large. And the world's largest lake, the freshwater Caspian Sea, 576 times as large. And so this is a small lake. It's a deep lake. But your use of water could never personally exhaust the limits of Lake Tahoe. Think about God as a source, eternal source of life and and, and the living water. Whatever your need is, God cannot exhaust. You cannot exhaust God's supply. And that's where Jesus is pulling the thread here to see what unravels the thread as you're engaging with the curious. But then I want you to see, to push through the smoke. Jesus said, go call your husband and come here. She said, I don't have a husband. His first smoke screen. There's more to that story. Jesus said, yeah, you're right. You have had five husbands. By the way, Jesus isn't being snarky to her. He's not being sarcastic to her. He says, the one who you now have is not your husband, and that you spoke truly. And she says, whoa, you're a prophet. And then she tries to distract and say, here's the differences between me and you. I'm Samaritan, we're Jewish, we have have different concepts about worship. And Jesus says, that's not what's at stake here. And verse 23, the hour is coming and now is when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit. And so Jesus is, uh, God, Jesus is telling them, God, God is a the spirit. They that worship must worship him in spirit and truth. This is, this is what we're, God's really concerned about. And then she begins to recall some information she's had from her religion. She says, I know Messiah is coming. And when he comes he's going to tell us all things. And Jesus said, "I, the one whose words you're hearing, I'm him. I'm Christ, I'm the Messiah." Why is Jesus doing here? He's exposing the smoke screen she's putting up. When you're engaging with the lost, when you're engaging with, with, with someone who, who is, is running from the light to darkness, you need to redirect to the heart. Jesus is not being snarky when He says, you well said, I have no husband. He's not. He, 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 is, he is redirecting her where to find hope. She's seeking, isn't she? But you know what she's seeking? She's seeking everything on the magazine cover, isn't she? She's seeking shiny things. She's looking for good news, but she's finding it in wrong worship. She's looking for, for good news in men. Uh, she, 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 uh, we're assuming that not all those five men there that she's had here uh, simply died and you know and and, and that marriage was ended there. We're assuming there's some there's some shame here, right? Uh, three was the limit, by the way, a <laughs> Jewish divorce law here, and she's she's at five, and um, and they they all didn't work out. She's trying to find her hero in men, isn't she? Jesus won't let her. Every relationship has made, has left her more thirsty. It's like she's in the middle of the ocean and she's taking cups of salt water, right? Water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. But friends, Jesus here, the love of Jesus is a conquering love. It, will bear, it bears down on her heart. And Jesus is getting close enough here to hold her hand and put it in His. And that's where we must be as believers in Jesus Christ. Love those people. Love these people enough to take their hand and put it in the hand of the Savior. Warren Wearsby said, the only way to prepare the soil of the heart for the seed is to plow it up with Conviction. That was why Jesus told her to go get her husband. He forced her to admit her sin. There could be no conversion without conviction. There must first be conviction and repentance, and then there can be saving faith. Jesus had aroused her mind and stirred her emotions, but He also had to touch her conscience, and that meant dealing with her sin. Someone has said, you don't fight Satan in the dark. He'll win every time. You fight him in the light of Jesus. You fight him in the light of Jesus. And here Jesus was having her bring these idols to light, bring these things she was worshiping to light, get them out of the dark and bring them to the light. And friends, as we are engaging with the loss and we remember this for our own hearts, Jesus isn't asking you to clean yourself up. Jesus isn't asking you to. to Jesus is asking you to bring the filth to the light to bring the shame to Him, to bring the addictions to Him, to bring the idolatry of your porn to Him, to bring the idolatry of your illicit sex to Him, to drag the idolatry of your lust to Him, to bring the idolatry of your gluttony to Him, to bring the anger and bitterness to Him, to bring your hatred about others to Him, to bring the your search for more money to Him, to bring your covetousness to Him, to bring your addictions to shiny things and buying things to Him, to bring the absurdity about your image to Him to bring the self righteous disguise you might wear to the shelter of His garments. He only puts them on confessing sinners. Do you have insecurities? As I do, are there things you are afraid of that you shouldn't be? Those are all signals that we put something more important than God in our lives. We have to have a guard up about certain things that we're petrified about. There are walls so thick about certain fortresses in our life that they hold off a nuclear blast. And that's death. That's destruction. But here's the good news. Jesus knows her and he's moving into her. He's pressing into her. And He knows the fortress that you and I have walled up. He knows the fortress that those we're engaging with of the Gospel have walled up. And He wants us by faith to bring it into light to Him and give Him the key. And He unlocks it. And He'll remove what that... and and that cancer are inside that walled up fortress, that fear, that sin, because He loves, He delights to unleash His mercy and pour out His love and wash over you with grace and set up His house in your life. So bring your husband. Bring your husband, He said. I wonder what you would say to that. What would Jesus say if He was engaging you at the well? Bring your... fill in the blank, Right? God is seeking worshipers. And worshipers are people who bring their sins to Jesus and acclaim Jesus. Jesus doesn't play around. Jesus is pushing through the smoke screen. Why? Because He has the free gift. He knows that she won't expect, accept it because she's got the water pot in her hands. That water pot is everything she's tried to fill every year. It represents a lot. Every day she takes that water pot and tries to fill it up. It's such a parable of her life, isn't it? She needs to put that water pot, she's tried to fill with everything else, and He's going to fill it with her and it'll never run out again. That's a gift she has to take. And so friends, with your own walk with Jesus, run to Him. Not away from Jesus, or not to the side of Jesus. Run to Him with your water pots. And as you're engaging with the lost, that's what you're doing. You're pushing through the smoke and encouraging to give Jesus their water pots. And then following verses 27-33, through 33, He takes this opportunity to be a teaching time because He's in the process of training other people. He's equipping others. His own disciples. And so He, 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 he speaks to them and says, Look at the vision here of God for souls. Look at the fields. And you always have. You guys always have this saying, well, four more months and it's going to be harvest time. And he says, that might be true for agriculture, but right now is the harvest time for people. Right now is the harvest time for people. They're already white for harvest, verse 35. For, uh, 35. Those who reap receive wages and gather fruit for eternal life. That both he who sows and those who, who reap can rejoice together. And Jesus says, I'm sending you to harvest for the things that you haven't labored and others have labored and you're entering in their labors. He's saying that, 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 that God is at work all the time and now there's a time for harvest. So He challenges the troops. He challenges the troops. He wants them to understand that this is what's going on. This is what I'm doing here. And I'm not just doing it to her. I'm doing it so this effort is multiplied. When God's army gets a hold of these truths. Jesus said, I'll do greater works through you than if I would have stayed here in my physical presence. Because this multiplication of disciples is incredible. It's exponential here. So He challenges the troops. He trains troops. And so as you're engaging with disciple making, you're engaging with evangelism and nurturing here, you need to be training others along the way with you. Now notice this woman. This woman. She's previously come and Shyly and carefully got her water. Didn't want people to know. Didn't want to have those scabs opened again. She had hidden from the town. And now notice what she does in verse 28. The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and said to the men, Come and see. Come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Messiah? And they went out and came. She now runs to the town. That pot that she had clutched to fill as she had had again and again and again, and it always ran empty. She's now found someone who knows her. She's now found, found someone who provides her life. And now she is running to the town and she's getting people to Jesus instead of hiding from them. Jesus frees repentant sinners. And He puts streams of life in her. You want to be wondering, what's the living waters? What's the streams of life? It's the life of Jesus that's given through the Holy Spirit. Very simply, it's the life of Jesus. And Jesus uses this teachable moment here to further train disciple makers to do the same, to see the vision, to cooperate with God's work. And then I'm going to close with this here. Sixth, He nurtures the newborns. He nurtures the newborns. They came in verse 30. His disciples come and they say, Jesus, we got some food for you. And Jesus said, listen, man, my job is to eat the will of my Father. That's my meat. That's what gets me going. My job is to do what God has told me to do and I've got to finish the work in verse 34. And then notice verse 39. After she tells the other people, the Samaritans, and many of the Samaritans of that city believed on Him for the saying of the woman, which testified, He told me all that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were coming to him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days, and many more believed because of his own word. And said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Jesus spends time this has been his pattern, isn't it? When he, was, when he was inviting the disciples to come to him in John chapter 1, come and see he spends time to them. Because Jesus is concerned not about growing squashes that grow really quick in our gardens and then they're just a vine you know, at the end of the season. He's concerned about growing oak trees. He wants his truth to sing deep here. Uh, he's not just interested in making converts. He's interested in making disciples. It will then multiply the work. So He spends time and He nurtures these newborns here. He, he, he shares with them the truths of who He is. And what's the result, verse 42? We heard Him with our own ears and we're convinced. We're convinced. So how do you steward curiosity? How do you steward curiosity? I want you to think about these um, steps of Jesus here as He stewards curiosity. And I want you to ask yourself this. How can I practice this? I've been united to Jesus. Jesus says, if you love me, you're going to keep my commands. The command he left before he ascended was to go make disciples of all nations, right? There are other commands, but that was an important one he left. What excuses do we have or lies lies that we may tend to believe that keep us from engaging Keep us from surrendering our hearts and crossing pain lines, crossing thresholds of where we're comfortable. Um, uh, what, what, are, what are the lies that, that keep us from engaging and seeing people as image bearers and people who are not yet believers? What, what, are, the, what, are, the, what are the intentional next steps you can take? And who are the people that God has put in your life, your circles here, your spheres of influence that are curious, and how can you recognize them? How can you begin and engage with them? And ask yourself this. I know some of you were were, were, were saved by Jesus Christ at a very early age, so it might be hard to remember here, but but uh when were when were you the curious? And what did God use in your life? What did God use in your life? His heads bowed and eyes are closed, we think about God's call. That men turn, as we saw in Ezekiel 33.11, men turn to Him. Men turn from their wickedness to God, Ezekiel 33.11. define true life i wonder this morning if you'd say you know what i'm one of these people who are curious and i want to have further discussions i want to look more into what jesus says i'm not there yet as far as on on the stages of, of fully believing but 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 i want to press into this i wonder if there's anyone here this morning you would you would simply lift your hand and say that's me i want to investigate this further Or maybe there's someone here who would say, you know what, I was curious, and Jesus, as I see Him in John chapter 4, Jesus is the only one who can give me living waters, and I find myself over and over again trying to fill my pot with something that doesn't satisfy. And today is the day I'm calling upon Jesus, because He's the living waters. He's died for my sins, He has risen again, and He promises new life. And you'd say this morning, that's me. And today, I'm making... A choice based on God's word to follow Jesus, receive his gift of salvation. Anybody there would lift their hand and indicate that? And then I wonder this morning, those of you and those of us, myself included, who know the Lord Jesus, who have not walked perfectly in all his ways, but who know the grace and mercy of Jesus and have tasted and seen that he is good, What are going to be our next steps to surrender our hearts, to engage the image bearers, to trust God and pull that thread, to push through the smoke and get to the heart, to train up other disciple makers and then to nurture those who God gives life. What will be your next step? What will be the lies you need to replace with truth And what will God use and how will God use you? Would you just take a moment here and ask God to help us be faithful in stewarding the curiosity of the unbelievers.